So we are continuing this series, uh, How Then Shall We Live? And if you haven't been here for the first two weeks, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the first message, listen to the second one. The first message was more of a foundation, and, and we talked about how as believers in Jesus Christ, it feels like we're living in ancient Babylon. And we talked about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego and how they, they, were, uh, uh, um, they were Jewish exiles into Babylon. And so they were immersed in a culture that was not like the culture that they came from. And, and, and where, they, where they came from as, 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 as children of Israel, they, they had a belief in the one true God, that there was one God, but then they were, they were forced into a reality of of Babylon, which was a view of a multiplicity of gods, hundreds and thousands of different gods and different worldviews and, and, and a lot of competing worldviews. And that's what we talked about in the first message of how this is how it feels for us as Christians today, like we're living in, in Babylon, where there's all these different competing worldviews that are contrary to the biblical worldview about marriage and family and gender and sexuality. And we talked last week about the issue of abortion and, and transgenderism and, and, the, and, the, and the gender movement and how those movements are contrary to the reality that God has shown us. And what has God shown us? What is what, 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 is what we called last week correspondence truth? What is the reality that corresponds to truth, the, the truth that corresponds to reality? And it is that every human life is precious and valuable and worthy of protection. And that if... If what is in a mother's womb is a human, which we believe and we know that it is, not just believe, we know it is a human. If it is a human, then it is worthy of our protection and that we would fight for every life. And we talked about gender and how the, 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 the battle for what is a male and what is a female, what, who, who gets to determine that? We talked about that last week. And we believe that God is the only one who can determine the gender that you are. And, 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 and we may feel a certain way internally and we may be confused because of our internal feelings, but, but we must submit to the authority of God as our creator. That he is the one who determines whether we are a male or a female. And, and we, we ended, especially last week's message, with a heart of compassion. And that we need to respond correctly to those, to those who are struggling. Maybe, they, maybe it's a woman who has had an abortion or, or they have an unwanted pregnancy. We must Respond to them with compassion and mercy. And, and those who may be struggling with their identity, we must have compassion and grace in their life and we must pursue them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today, we're gonna talk about the, the subject of, of biblical marriage. I've titled the message this morning, Biblical Marriage, the Foundation of Society. And within this message, we're obviously gonna look at God's design for marriage, but we're, we're also gonna look at the the areas in which within our society is concerning sexuality and sexual sin that seeks to undermine the foundation of marriage and, biblical, and, and the biblical view of marriage. And so this is kind of what we're going to look at. And so I want to encourage you, if, if you have a child in here that, that you feel like you're not ready for them to listen to a, a, a message about sexuality and sex and the different subjects that we may cover, nothing will be inappropriate in this message. But if you're not ready for your child to hear that while I'm praying... Before I preach, it would be your opportunity to bring your kid to, kid, to, to kids' church. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to gather together and to, to listen to your word. The truth of your word is concerning marriage, not what the culture says, 
Not not what man has come up with and their own decision about what marriage is to be, what family is to be, what sexuality is to be. Not what the world says, but what you say. God, may we submit to that. God, may we submit to no one else with our full allegiance but Christ. And may we submit to your word today. I pray that you would help me to, to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So everyone knows the importance of a foundation, right? Importance of a physical foundation. If you're building a house, one of the first things that is going to take place, and my wife and I, we self-contracted a house back in 2009, and one of the first things that took place was the, the, uh, the concrete guy got out there, and they dug up the ground, and they, they plotted the lines, and they got all the measurements, and they, they dug in, they put in the plumbing, and they did all the, the underground work that needed to be done, and then finally when it stopped raining <laughs> after delay after delay during that season, he came out with some concrete bright early one morning, and I was so excited. We're about to have a foundation, and so he pours the foundation, and And come to find out, later on, after he poured the foundation, we lost about 25 square feet of our master bathroom because he did not follow the the plans. The foundation is important. The plans are important. The foundation is what's important. And thankfully, the foundation was good. It was just off with his measurements. And I, I don't know if I ever, did I ever tell you that? That you had a smaller bathroom than what you could have had? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It actually wasn't, that part wasn't a part of my notes. It just is what came out as I was talking. I, we, we lost 25 square feet of our master bathroom. That's an important deal. Uh, but what, what begins to happen when a foundation is faulty on a house? What do you begin to see? You begin to see cracks. I, I, I have a friend that lives in Texas, and I was at his house uh, 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 last month, and, and, and he, he warned me. He said, before you walk in my house, no, we have foundation problems, and we're beginning to address it with the insurance company, but you walk into his house, and there was cracks from the ceiling to the floor, and some of the doors uh, stopped being able to close, and because the foundation is off, the walls and everything that's built on that foundation gets shifted and doesn't, doesn't work properly, right? Bricks on the outside wall of a house can begin to come loose because the foundation is off and, and, and my contention and what I believe is true what we, we all see is that in our society today the, the foundation for the biblical view of marriage or the foundation for marriage has a lot of cracks in it today. And what is meant to be the centerpiece of society, marriage, the biblical view of marriage, it's fractured and it's, it's got cracks and it's the foundation of our society is not where it needs to be. And, and we all see it. And I think it starts in marriage. You know, there are a few things that you could say are foundational to a society's flourishing. You, you would, we'd be able to say that a biblical view of God as creator is important for human flourishing, that we would know where we came from. A biblical view of the sanctity of human life as we talked about this morning. A biblical view of God's design for gender for male and female. That's important for the foundation. A biblical view of that for the foundation of a society. A biblical view of morality. Who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong and, and will we have a society that is found, founded on morality? And you look around today and it increasingly seems like people don't want any foundation for morality. They want to live however they want to live 
You know, you, you, you saw back in, uh, what was it, in 2020, you, you, the defund the police movement. People believing that that's a good idea to stop funding police officers. Police officers come from God to punish evil, as we saw in Romans 13, and to reward those that are, that are good, to protect those that are righteous. So what, what this, this, that, that, a biblical view of morality is important for our society. But I think that there's one foundation stone that I believe is the centerpiece of all these other worldview foundations, and it is the biblical view of marriage. That foundation stone is, I think, the one of the most critical foundation stones of all of society, marriage and family, a biblical view of marriage and family, and God's design for marriage and family. It touches, listen, it touches societies, every societal view of every other significant worldview. It, marriage and family touches all these other worldviews, the view of morality, the view of the sanctity of human life and God is creator and male and female, a man and a woman married, raising kids to honor God and live for God. It touches every single one of those other worldviews. And God designed marriage to be the centerpiece of families and communities and society as a whole. Do you believe that today? And this is what we want to talk about, a biblical marriage. So where would we go? Where would you think we'd go to talk about that? You can talk to me. Go to the Bible, but we'd go where in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, right? We, it's, there's so many things in, in this world that we could correct if we would just return to Genesis. Isn't that true? Turn to Genesis. Genesis 1. Look, look with me. Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Then God said, a little side note right there. That's all you really need to know, right? You don't even know what the politicians say. You don't really need to know, right, right, right? The politicians may say something, and, 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 and your mama may say something, and your daddy may say something, and, and, the two, and the news media may be saying things. But really what we need to know, what does God say? What is God's word say, right? That's a little bonus, extra. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed, with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, God's given you dominion over the creeps. a preacher joke I'm sorry and God saw everything that he made listen God saw everything he made and behold it was very good he said it was good for the first five days it's good it's good it's good he makes man he makes woman in his image he said it is very good and there was evening there was morning the sixth day so what we're going to do this morning from this context of Genesis 1 biblical view of of marriage Two perspectives and then our response. Two perspectives and then our response. Well, here's the first perspective this morning from what we see in Genesis about how, how God designed marriage. The first perspective is that God designed marriage between a man and a woman for the common good of all. 
God designed marriage between a man and a woman for the common good of all. A marriage between a man and a woman and the raising of children is the foundation, as we've been saying, the foundation of our society. Woven into the very fabric of our existence is the necessity of marriage and family. We would not even exist if it would not be for the institution of marriage. Do I have to get into the biology this morning? No, I don't, right? We would not even exist if we would not have the institution of marriage, a man and a woman coming together and and having kids and raising families. Marriage is God's good idea. It's his idea. The institution of marriage is not of human origin. And what have we been talking about the first two weeks? Man wants to take authority and autonomy over his or her own life to decide what they want for their life, even down to the level of their very own identity and who they are as a man or a woman. Marriage is God's design. God made human beings. He made a man and he made a woman and he gave them their DNA and then he brings them together in marriage. Man does not have authority over what marriage is to be. Then God said, this is a biblical worldview. This is our worldview as Christians. We believe that God is the ultimate authority, do we not? So the marriage is God's idea. The, and, and what's interesting, when you look at Scripture, the Bible begins with a wedding, doesn't it? God, the Bible begins with a wedding, and, and what, what does the Bible end with? The marriage supper of, of the Lamb. The final wedding where we will be reunited with, 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 with Christ and we will celebrate that, 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 that completion and that final union. So the Bible begins with marriage and ends with marriage. Marriage is God's idea and, and marriage is intended to reflect the God who created it. If you're married here today, your marriage is intended to reflect the God who created it. It's meant to be a sacred reflection. And so I want to touch on a few things, a few ways in which marriage reflects this, uh, a God. And, and, and so here's one way. Marriage is a sacred reflection of, of God's Trinitarian nature. Who is God? Who is God? God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But, 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 but God is one. God is one, but God is three. God is, God is one God, but he is, he, is, he is three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all at the same time. Do you guys get that? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, maybe it's, right? It's a divine mystery. God is one, but he is three, three in one. And marriage is designed by God because it's his creation. And if it says in Genesis that we reflect his image, then marriage would reflect that beautiful mystery, wouldn't it? What do we see? Genesis 2, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one. It's a divine mystery. That is a reflection. How can two become one? How can three be one? How can God be three but one? It's a divine mystery. It is marriage is a reflection of the very nature of God. Marriage is a divine mystery. Only God, and if you've been married for any length of time, you know only God can make two people one. I've heard it said that marriage is like two porcupines trying to get close. And, you, and some of you think, I've been married for a while, and I don't think that we're one right now. 
I think we're struggling a little bit, but, but in, the, in, the, in the divine mystery, God has taken two people, submitted to the lordship of Christ, and he's made them one. Marriage also is a sacred reflection of the union between Christ and his church. Where do we see this? Ephesians 5, so beautiful. What a beautiful reflection that we in our marriages can reflect this union between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This mystery is profound. What, what, what mystery is profound? Two becoming one. A wife submitting to a husband, a husband submitting to a wife. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, Paul says. Paul says, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Isn't that beautiful? Marriage is a sacred reflection of how Christ laid down his life for us. Paul says, what a profound mystery. And what are we meant to reflect in our marriage? We're meant to reflect self-sacrifice, submission, and selfless love. Self-sacrifice, submission, and selfless love. So marriage reflects the very nature of God. It reflects the union between Christ and his church. Marriage is also a sacred reflection, listen, of God's desire to fill the earth with image bearers for his glory. Amen? Genesis 1.28, God said, God blessed them, and God said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And I want us to think about this. God's first command to the first people that he created was to have babies. You can go check it back in Genesis. His first command was, was for them together to have babies. Isn't that amazing? You know, when you, that shows you, it shows you the value that God places on marriage and on children. On children. Children are a blessing from the world. They're to be celebrated, not tolerated. They're to be celebrated, and we should, we should desire. If you're here today and, 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 you're of, and you're married and you're of childbearing age, have children. And, and if you're struggling to have kids and maybe biological kids are not what God is going to give you, Seek to have kids in other ways, adoption, foster care, many ways in which we can raise kids for the glory of God. Amen? A husband and a wife working together to build a family and reflect God's image in society is one of the most basic blessings from God. Amen? It's one of the most basic blessings from God. And I would call it this, it's called a common grace. It's a common grace. God gave marriage as a common grace that all of his creations can be blessed from. So you don't have to be a believer here and be married here today, right? And you know that. There's a lot of non-believers that are married and having babies, right? So it's a common grace. What is a common grace? Well, well, this would be what a common grace is. Uh, Scripture also says that rain falls on the just and the unjust. So think of it as a farmer. A farmer, you have a Christian farmer and a non-Christian farmer, and the Christian farmer works hard, and the non-Christian farmer works hard, and from our worldview as a Christian, we think, well, God, don't rain on the non-Christian's farm and his seed. Rain on my seed because I'm righteous. But that's not, that's not common grace. God has given common grace to all of humanity that the rain falls on the farm of the unrighteous, and we're thankful for that, aren't we? 
I, I eat some unrighteous apples and some unrighteous uh, uh, bananas and some unrighteous whatever, you know. I thank God that unrighteous people who don't serve the Lord can have fruits and vegetables and raise animals and farms, right? Right? God, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's called common grace. Wayne Grudem says this about common grace. He says, common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not a part of salvation. Isn't that good? But what is common grace meant to do? The common grace of God is designed to point people to their maker so that they would recognize him as creator and ultimately worship him as savior. You know the scripture that says the goodness of God leads men to repentance? What does that mean? It's the common grace of God that is the goodness that should lead men to repentance. Men that don't follow Christ, the fact that they wake up every day and they breathe oxygen that they had no control of, the fact that they're able to, to work and to live and to be married and to raise kids, to, to experience the joys of this life, it should cause them that goodness of God should cause them to fall on their knees and to acknowledge God as their creator and Christ as their savior. That's called common grace. And this is what marriage is in our society. This is why we fight for the biblical definition of marriage because this view of marriage is, is, is what we need for human flourishing today. I wanna live in a society that celebrates biblical marriage. I wanna live in a society today that celebrates the way that the creator designed the earth and humanity to function, don't you? Yes. When families reflect, let's think about it. When families reflect God's design for marriage, and they're raising kids, and ultimately Christian families raising kids to fear the Lord, how is society impacted for good? When that happens, well, let's think about it. Children are taught what? They're taught right and wrong. They're taught right and wrong. They're taught honesty. You know, sometimes I have some dishonest kids. You have some dishonest kids? I got some two little ones that they struggle. You know, when the pressure comes on, right, we, we, they, 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 their instinct is to lie. Like we all have that instinct when the pressure comes on, right? But whenever you have a husband and a wife working together for the, for the, for, for the raising of kids to honor God, to fear God, they're taught right and wrong. They're taught honesty. They're taught consequences for choices. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Good choices produce good fruit. Bad choices produce bad fruit. This is a, a family raising kids, a husband and a wife raising kids. Right and wrong, honesty. Children are taught right and wrong, honesty. Consequences of choices, the value of, of work. This is built into what we see in marriage and families and what it should look like. The value of work. The understanding of finances. Watched a video, a pastor friend of mine sent me a video of this, of this person, this guy, um, this, this girl, excuse me, that, that uh, was working at Starbucks and she was complaining that she had to work eight and a half hours that day. She's like, Starbucks needs, needs a union. Like, this is a real video, this is not made up. She's, she's crying. Starbucks needs a union because it's, it's out of control that we should be made to work eight and a half hours. Something has gone wrong, right? God designed marriage and family to come together, husband and wife, to teach children the value of work, the understanding of finances, generosity, empathy, 
service to others. Do you see it? This comes from the biblical view of marriage and family where we raise kids to honor God and they function well in society. They're not a danger to society. Did you guys get that? How do godly marriages have an impact on society? Well, we see it in the raising of kids. I, I love what Table Talk magazine says about the impact of godly marriage on society. It says this, even though we are still sinners, as husbands and wives living in his wonderful paradigm for marriage, we still have the high standard of his word and the power of the Holy Spirit transforming us from the inside out. Such marriages will be salt and light in this decaying and dark culture. Your godly home in marriage will become a lighthouse that pierces the darkness and becomes a guiding beacon to the masses lost on the sea of twisted gender orientations and identities, meaningless and sinful sexual encounters, and marriages whose only goal is materialistic ascendancy. Did you follow that? Is that, is that in your handout? No. That's a powerful quote. Our marriages as believers in Jesus Christ point to the world. We become a lighthouse that pierces the darkness, a guiding beacon to the masses lost at sea to say, look at what it looks like. See what it looks like to have a man and a woman ordering their life according to what God said. Look at what it looks like to have a family ordering their life according to how God said the marriage should be and how kids should be raised. Look at that and our lives should reflect that, not to perfection. We know we're going to make mistakes. We are sinners being sanctified. But this is God's good design for society. God has given marriage and the raising of kids as a common grace for our common good, for human flourishing. You know, it really is the very basics. Marriage is the very basics. A man and a woman meet. They fall in love. They get married. And they have babies. They have children. And then they seek the good of society as a whole. And on top of all of that, that's the common grace of marriage. But marriages and families that are founded upon Christ and his word have the unique blessing of reflecting the power of the gospel to the watching world. Is that you here today? Is that, is that your marriage? Do you see that responsibility and that, that blessed privilege that we have? Amen? Amen. This is the first perspective. God designed marriage between a man and a woman for the common good of all. What's the next perspective we have to think about? Well, the next one is this, that Satan uses every possible means for the destruction of God's very good design. He uses every possible means. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. The second half of this message is going to be challenging, but I want you to track with me and follow with me. I, I believe you see what I see as I'm going to unpack this. Satan uses every possible means for the destruction of God's very good design, because when he can attack God's very good design of marriage and family, he can impact a society as a whole. And that is exactly what we see. And it started in Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So what's happening right there? It's deceit and division. It's deceit and then it's division. De de deceit is sown into the first marriage and then division is sown into the first marriage. And what is the result of deceit and division sown into the first marriage? Death. Well, the enemy's lies 
brings deceit, then it brings division, then it brings death. Deceit, division, and death. And you see that in society. You see that in marriages and family. Believing the enemy's lies about marriage and family, the deceits, the division, the separation, and then the death. You see the effects of death, the the death that comes through sin. You see the effects all over our culture, don't we? So this is the meta-narrative or the big picture of what happened to the institution of marriage in Genesis. Sinners now get married and not fully sanctified sinners get married and and they hurt and they cause pain and they separate and they divide because they're listening to the lies of the enemy and there's deceit and division and death. We see it all over but, but this is what we see in Genesis, but, but what about our country? When, when, do we, when did we begin to see a progression, an acceleration away from the biblical view of marriage as being the, the standard? We talked about this in week one, as being the standard of what people celebrated in, in our country. I think we can trace the acceleration of the demise of the institution of marriage in America to the early 1960s and the sexual revolution and the feminist movement. We can trace it directly to that in the 1960s, the sexual revolution and the feminist movement. The biblical view of marriage used to be commonly honored and celebrated. So what, what, what was the sexual revolution? And this is, and this obviously, none of this is new, but we saw it accelerated. History shows us the acceleration of it. The sexual revolution was known also as sexual liberation. It was a societal movement that challenged traditional codes of behavior, related to sexuality and personal relationships. Sexual liberation included increased acceptance of sex outside of traditional heterosexual monogamous relationships, primarily in marriage. And as a result of this revolution, we saw that normal, we've seen the normalization of pornography, of pre-marriage, premarital sex, homosexuality, alternative forms of sexuality, the legalization of abortion, all that followed came on the heels of the sexual revolution, sexual liberation. But before the 60s and the 70s and the sexual liberation that some of you lived through, you're old enough to have experienced that, there was a precursor to to that. There was a lady named Margaret Sanger. Who, Who knows who Margaret Sanger is? Margaret Sanger is the founder, was the founder of Planned Parenthood. She wrote a book published in the 19. In 1920, called Woman and the New Race. Listen to a quote. This is a direct quote from her book. It says, The most serious evil of our times is that of encouraging the bringing into the world of large families. The most immoral practice of the day is breeding too many children. The most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant's members, infant members, is to kill it. Wow. Right, so that's the 1920s, you think, that, that was there in the 1920s, absolutely, the evil was there, right, this mindset was there. But what, what, what was Sanger advocating? What was she wanting to see change? She believed, this is her books, she's written, she wrote numerous books and gives lots of talks and lectures, she believed the biblical view of marriage and family was an oppressive institution. This is the feminist movement that was connected with all of this. In her mind, marriage was oppressive to women and dangerous for society as a whole. She saw the institution of marriage as a patriarchal institution. While, while, while we know that certainly sinful men do oppress women, right? But men functioning under God's authority and as designed as the servant leaders of their homes, they protect their wives and their kids and their families, right? But she saw 
marriage as a patriarchal institution where men dominated women. And so she sought in her writings and she influenced others uh, throughout the decades that would follow that would lead to the sexual revolution and liberation. We want free of institutions. We want free of the institution of marriage and women being submitted in marriage and, and having kids. And ultimately what she was advocating, listen, was sexual autonomy, sexual freedom. And the sexual revolution was founded on that Mindset, freedom over my body. It's my body. It's my choice. I can be with whomever I want, whenever I want. No rules. No outdated rules met by oppressive men. Right, and that's the same mindset today. We saw it develop in American history, and we're reaping the whirlwind of those evil worldviews. Are we not? My body, my choices, I can do with Whomever I be with whomever I want, whenever I want, no rules, no outdated rules written by oppressive men. There was another turning point, so, so let's fast forward a few decades. Let's, let's go to 2015. You guys remember what happened in 2015? It's concerning marriage. June 25th, 2015, the fail ruling of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in America that same-sex marriage was legal in our country. And what did the president of the United States do on June 26, 2015? He lit the White House with the symbol of the LGBTQ movement. The leader of our country fully embraced a perverse view of marriage, right? So you see it, the 20s, Margaret Sanger and others like her, the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s, and, and we're sowing these seeds of rebellion against God and his order. Then God said, no, no, not then God said, then, then I say my way, my rules, what I want, and, and it grows and these seeds are planted and harvest comes, right? And it's harvested where the leader of America, I'm not talking about in our country, where the leader of America celebrates an unbiblical, perverse view of marriage, when God's plan for marriage and family is rejected, this is what happens. And what's interesting is those colors of the LGBTQ movement, the rainbow are the colors. The rainbow was used by God to declare a promise. And it's now being used by those who flaunt their open rebellion against him. It's amazing. I took a picture of a rainbow. Anytime I see a rainbow at our church, I take a picture of it and I post it on our Facebook page to remind us of, and I quote the scripture, and I quote the promise from scripture so we can rightly understand what the rainbow means. So, you guys tracking with me? Are you still with me? All right, we're gonna shift here for a second. Okay, so, so when all forms of sexual expression are embraced, when anything and everything goes, my body, my rights, we see this, this progression. I just gave you a little history of how I think we got where, where we're at, and there's many other things I could have brought out, uh, but I don't wanna preach an hour and 10 minutes like I did last week, <laughs> so I apologize for that. But, but so, so I didn't give you all the details I could have, but where we are is we are in our country where we don't want the rules of God, right? And so what happens to marriage and sexuality? What happens to sex in God's view of marriage? Well, well, what, does that look, what does it look like in our society right now? It looks like homosexuality. That's the first thing that we see. Homosexuality is a complete inverting or twisting of God's design for marriage and human sexuality. Now, you remember last week I talked about correspondence truth, correspondence reality. This is a tie. This is a pulpit 
these are lights, I am a man, right? What I see in reality corresponds, what, what, what I see as true corresponds to reality. You guys get that? Homosexuality fits under that same umbrella of correspondence truth. God made a man and God made a woman. We see that biblical worldview and we see the very body in which God gave a man, gave a woman. He made them to come together. It, it's, it's, it's simple, is it not? It's simple. It's correspondence truth and reality. Homosexuality is a twisted expression of sexuality. And this is what the Bible says, Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up. I believe God's given us up as a country to this. It's a judgment of God. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's just Romans 1. We could go to 1 Corinthians. We could go to other portions of the New Testament, go to the Old Testament. The Bible as a whole, it, it, it clearly condemns homosexual behavior because it is against nature, right? That's what it means. It's, it's against nature. It's against God's design. It's against God's design for human flourishing, for the building of families and for the blessing of society. Do you follow that? You know, you'll often hear, see, so people will argue and they'll interpret some of these scriptures like Romans 1 and they'll see it in a different light. They'll look at Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament and they'll interpret it differently. Why did God judge Sodom? Well, it was because of they were not hospitable. And, and none of those things are true, a part of what's in the text. It's so clear that God condemns homosexual behavior, right? But you hear people often say, well, Jesus never said anything against homosexuality or homosexual marriage. Well, what did Jesus say? This is just one reference. Mark 10, 7 through 8. Jesus quoted Genesis. He said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So, people say, well, yeah, the Old Testament condemns it. And yes, Paul condemns it. And 1 Corinthians condemns it. But Jesus never did, so I follow Jesus. But what did Jesus do when he affirmed the Genesis account of marriage? What did he do when he, when he gave his definition of marriage? What was he doing? He was rejecting all other definitions, right? Does that logic work? Does he have to give a, an explicit command against it? He didn't have to give an explicit command against it. He says, this is how marriage is to be, between a man and a woman, and the two shall become one flesh. The answer the answer is Jesus' affirmation of the Genesis account of creation. When he gives that, he gives his definition of marriage. And we work with the definition that he has given. We cannot take scripture and read into it what Jesus did not specifically deny. So Jesus' positive affirmation of male and female marriage is his denial of any other form of marriage. You guys tracking with that? But those that are in the homosexual movement, they're... They, they are completely rejecting the Bible as a whole. 
there obviously are some that are trying to say that they're, they're homosexuals and they're Christians at the same time, but I don't, I don't know how that's possible. It would be like saying that I'm, I'm a Christian and a serial adulterer. I'm a Christian and I lie every day. I'm a Christian and I live in unrepentant sin every single day. It's not possible. It's not congruent to have somebody living in open rebellion against God and his word and be a Christian at the same time. But the, the activists, they're, they're not satisfied until God's design is completely changed. This is uh, Mike, Michelangelo Signorelli. Signorelli, he's an American homosexual activist. He says this for his community, fight for same-sex marriage and its benefits. And then once granted, redefine the institution of marriage completely. The most subversive action lesbians and gay men can undertake is to transform the notion of family entirely. This is what happens when we reject God's design for marriage and family. Homosexual sin takes place. Well, what is the lie of homosexuality? Here's the lie. The lie is this. Living according to how I identify will finally bring wholeness to my life. That's the lie of homosexuality. Living according to how I identify will finally bring wholeness to my life. That's the same for the transgender movement. That's the same for any other aberrant form of sexual activity. The lie is that it will finally bring wholeness to my life. So that's the first area, homosexuality. Well, when God's plan for marriage is rejected, Satan's lie is embraced, homosexuality is what you see. Another area is pornography. Pornography, this is another form of sexual sin. The pornography business in America is a $1.1 billion industry in America. As of 2022 worldwide, it is a $97 billion industry. You know, it used to be that to get pornography, you had to go into places that were dark and dirty. Or you had to go to a gas station and you had to get the magazine that had the, the plastic wrap on it and it was covering the nudity. And you had to make the walk of shame because you had to grab the magazine and walk up to the counter and buy it. But you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to walk into the dark, dirty halls of a pornography store or an adult store. Now you carry the potential in your pocket everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, it can be in your house, in your bathroom, on your job, while you're driving. Every instant of your life that you're connected to your smartphone, you can have access to all the depravity of human sexuality that is available for you to look at in an instant. Is that not true? Everywhere. What is the lie of pornography? The lie of pornography is this, instant sexual gratification without consequences. This is the lie of pornography, that it is instant sexual gratification without consequences. It's just me and my phone. It's not hurting anyone else. I'm not bothering anyone else. It's in the privacy of my home, just me and my screen. And the, 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 the lie is, is that instant gratification without consequences. But what are the consequences of pornography? What does pornography do to marriage and families? You see broken marriages, broken relationships, addiction. People are addicted to pornography. A twisting of God's good design for sex. The objectification of women and men. And then ultimately exploitation. Ultimately exploitation. And, and we are in our country right now. We're not very far away. There's this term called MAPS. Minor attracted persons. Have you heard of that? It's a, it's a, it's a glossed over term for pedophilia exploitation kids exploited for sexual pleasure and here's what pornography is pornography 
offers something it can never deliver. And what is that? Satisfaction. Pornography offers something it can never deliver. Pornography will never satisfy. Pornography is like fire. You know how fire is never satisfied, the book of James says? Fire is never satisfied. When you set something on fire, that fire, that spark is always looking for the next thing to consume. And the same thing is true with pornography. Pornography lies and says instant gratification, no consequences, and satisfaction. But it can never deliver in satisfaction. What pornography delivers is dissatisfaction. You always want something more. The next level of pornography, dissatisfaction. When God's plan is rejected and lies embraced, you see homosexuality, you see pornography, you see now the hookup culture. You guys tracking with me? The hookup culture. I had a conversation with the pastor a couple months ago when he was doing pre-marriage counseling with a couple of, uh, a man and a woman in their early 30s and, and he's wanting to know their history sexually so he can help bring counseling into their future. And he knew that they weren't Christians when they were growing up and they lived together for, for quite a while. And so he asked them, how many sexual partners have you had? And so the woman spoke up, and this is what she said. She said, I don't want to talk about this or think about this. There are too many to count. Wow, right? This is the hookup culture in our society. And the man said the same thing. You know, that is pain. And that is brokenness, and that is regret, and that is shame. What did God design for human sexuality? Genesis 2, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, that shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not, were not ashamed. They weren't carrying over shame from past sexual encounters, too many to even count. A man and a woman together with a sexual union protected for the marriage bed. Right, what is the lie of the hookup culture? The lie is this, is that sexual pleasure will bring me joy. Right? Homosexuality, pornography, hookup culture. When God's plan is rejected and lies embraced, what, what, what's, another, what's another attack on marriage and family and sexuality? What's cohabitation, fornication? Cohabitation, fornication. You know the divorce rate's going down in our country. Increasingly going down because people are not getting married. They're cohabitating. They're just living together, and they're living as if they were married. Well, what does the Bible say about that? The Bible clearly shows us that sexual pleasure is designed to be experienced in the marriage bed only. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable among all, right? Common grace. Marriage is honorable among all. It's the common grace. And the bed, the marriage bed is what? The marriage bed is undefiled. Speaking of sexual pleasure and sex, the marriage bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will, God will judge. Wow. Marriage is honorable among all. So what is the lie of fornication or living together? Well, I think there's a couple of them. Uh, trying things out before commitment will strengthen our relationship. Look. We've been married, we be 19 years this next month. We got married young. We were in our early 20s. Thank God we did it. You know, now look, some of you are at different seasons of your life and you didn't find your right one until you got older. And I get that, it's understandable. But like, get married. If you're of marrying age, get married. Honor God. Get married. Flee temptation. I mean, look, Estelle could barely keep her hands off of me. We had to get married right away.
<laughs> I have lots of stories I could share with you. But we made it to the altar by the skin of our teeth. And, and you're going to laugh because you you're going to think I'm lying to you, but it was our first kiss at the altar. It's beautiful. Some of you in this room, you know the stories I would tell because I've told it to some youth before. But get married. Don't live together. What are you going to figure out before you get married? That's just a lie. It's just a lie. And I know that there's hurt. Right? Your parents got divorced, and you're like, I don't want to get married because I don't think marriage works. Your parents got divorced for the reasons that they got divorced, and it didn't have to be your reasons. It had to be your marriage. Found your life on God and his word. Then God said, live that way according to what God says. And you will have a marriage that honors the Lord. When God's plan is rejected and lies embrace homosexuality, hookup culture, fornication, right? Pornography, adultery. That's another one, right? What does the Bible say about adultery? I just want to read this section to you. Listen, we're, we're about to wrap up here. Proverbs 5, listen to God's word. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Drink water from your own cistern. That means sexual pleasure is designed for marriage only. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Should you be committing adultery with those that are not your spouse? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Proverbs 6, listen. Can a man carry fire next to his chest or his clothes and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Adultery. What is the lie of adultery? It is a lie of adultery. Plain and simple. What I don't have is better than what I do have. And what I don't have will satisfy me. What I don't have is better than what I do have, and I covet what I don't have because I believe that what I don't have will satisfy me. You guys follow that? God designed marriage for the common good of all, and Satan in his schemes is actively seeking to destroy marriage through, through fornication, through adultery, through pornography, through homosexuality, all these different subversive things that undermine the foundation of marriage as God designed it. And we see the impacts on our culture, don't we? We see it everywhere. And so thirdly, as we end, what is our response to God's design, to, this, to Satan's attack? What's our response? Three things, real short. Repentance, rejection, reconciliation. Repentance, rejection, reconciliation. We must repent of our, of our rejection of God's very good design for marriage and sexuality. Of our rejection, brothers and sisters in Christ. We must repent of our rejection. This is not, I'm not preaching to the world today. They're not watching me on YouTube. 
There may be some non-believers in here this morning, but you're Christians, right? We must repent of our rejection of God's good design for marriage and sexuality. Where have we sinned? The pornography, the adultery, right? Divorce, where we're ready to just give up on our marriage just because I'm not happy and fulfilled, right? We must repent. Listen to the psalmist David who was caught in sexual sin with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan confronted him and listened to David's heart. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Do you hear it? He's not talking about Bathsheba. He's not talking about the wicked culture that's out there. He says, me, my sins, my transgressions, my iniquities. Lord, forgive me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That should humble all of us, should it not? Verse 10 through 12, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You know, there's one thing. Sexual sin. Of all sins. It's a sin against our own body. It's a sin against God's design. Sexual sin will rob you of the joy of God's salvation. Amen. We must repent of our rejection. And secondly, we must reject the world's view of marriage and sexuality. We must not be desensitized. We must not be deceived and we must not be desensitized. We must not be deceived and think that we are above what we see the world walking in. We must not be desensitized or we will become like them. Every day, in every way possible, the culture is forcing their view of marriage and sexuality onto TV commercials to shows, to movies, onto YouTube, to TikTok, to Instagram, to Facebook, to podcasts, to music, to art. And we must not be desensitized. We cannot become desensitized in our thinking over time. How does desensitization happen? It's here a little, there a little. It's, it's a late, late lowering our standards and our convictions a little bit here, a little bit there. I'll watch this a little bit. And I just, listen, listen, I think it's just so important for us to think about all these areas that we're talking about, I think they're all really, these areas of sexual sin, they're all so connected to what we consume with our eyes and our ears. The songs we listen to, what do they celebrate? The shows we watch, what do they endorse? And it's just a here a little, there a little. It's a, it's, I used to not watch that, but now I watch it and I don't really have a problem and there's a hardening and there's a lack of conviction. Right? We cannot become desensitized in our thinking and allow that the filth from the culture to influence our thinking, to lower our convictions, lower our convictions of then God said, then God said, so that's how I want to live. What's the third thing we must do? Well, firstly, we must repent, we must reject. Thirdly, we must preach reconciliation to those who are trapped in lies. 
we must preach reconciliation. So, so there are those all around you that their marriage is going through divorce. There, there are those all around you in, in your life that maybe they're addicted to pornography or they're, they're cohabitating or maybe they're homosexual or, or, or maybe they're, 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 they're in the trans movement or may, whatever the form that is aberrant from God's design. We must preach reconciliation to those who are bound in lies. Isn't that our message? It's a message of reconciliation. That God who is holy, who can't have sin in his presence, a holy God desires to be reconciled to his creations. And he sent his son to be the bridge of reconciliation so that sinful man apart from God can be reconciled through the, through the, through the satisfactory work of, the, of Christ on the cross. And that's our message, that the fornicator can be forgiven, the adulterer can be forgiven, the homosexual can be forgiven. Those that are addicted to pornography can be forgiven. They can be cleansed. All areas of sin can be cleansed and forgiven because God sent his son because he loves sinners. Amen? God sent his son because he loves sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. So we must preach a message of reconciliation to those who are trapped in lies. Amen? Repentance, rejection, and reconciliation. Amen. Well, that's the end of my notes. There's nothing else on the page. So I think I need to close in prayer. I think you, I think you got it this morning, didn't you? We're gonna, I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to end with singing. I love ending with singing. Let's end with singing. Father, I thank you for what your word shows us in Genesis of your very good design. God, we, we're not the creator. We don't have authority over our own life or over our own bodies. As it says in 1 Corinthians, we were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And may that be true of our life that we would glorify you with our bodies. And God, I pray that you would help us to live with compassion and that we would preach the gospel of reconciliation to all those who are lost in the lies of the enemy. And I pray that you'd help us to not be hypocrites in our life, but to live truly according to your word in every area of our life. May we not be duplicitous in this area of sexual sin. Lord, may we walk according to your word. That we thank you for your word and what it does. Help us to live according to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.